a lecture on Zen is always something in the nature of a hoax because it really does deal with a domain of experience that can't be talked about. But one must remember at the same time that there's really nothing at all that can be talked about adequately. And the whole art of poetry is to say what can't be said. So every poet, every artist, feels when he gets to the end of his work that there's something absolutely essential that was left out. So Zen has always described itself as a finger pointing at the moon. In the Sanskrit saying, Tattvamasi, that art thou, Zen is concerned with that. That, of course, is the word which is used for Brahman, the absolute reality in Hindu philosophy. And you're it, only in disguise, and disguised so well that you've forgotten it. But unfortunately, ideas like the ultimate ground of being, the self, Brahman, ultimate reality, the great void, all that is very, very abstract talk. And Zen is concerned with a much more direct way of coming to an understanding of that, or thatness, as it's called, tathata, in Sanskrit. So Zen has been summed up in four statements. A direct transmission outside scriptures and apart from tradition. No dependence on words and letters. Direct pointing to the human mind and seeing into one's own nature and becoming Buddha. That is, becoming enlightened, awakened from the normal hypnosis under which almost all of us go round like somnambules. It's extraordinary how much interest has existed in Zen in the United States, especially in the years since the war with Japan. And naturally, I've often meditated on the reasons for this interest. I think, first of all, the appeal of Zen lies in its unusual quality of humor. Religions aren't, as a rule, humorous in any way. Religions are serious. And when one looks at Zen art and reads Zen stories, it is quite apparent that something is going on here which isn't serious in the ordinary sense, however sincere it may be. The next thing I think that has appealed to Westerners is that Zen has no doctrines. There is nothing you have to believe, and it doesn't moralize at you very much. It's not particularly concerned with morals at all. It's a field of inquiry, rather like physics. And you don't expect a physicist to discuss authoritatively about morals, even though as a human being he has moral interests and problems. But as a physicist, he is not a moral authority. 
or if you go to an oculist or ophthalmologist to have your eyes adjusted, that is so you can see clearly. And Zen is spiritual ophthalmology. Another thing that appeals very much to Western students about Zen is that they've read their Zen from Suzuki and from some of my writings and from R.H. Blythe. And these people present a rather different kind of Zen from that which you will find today in Japan. They present what is essentially early Chinese Zen from the old writings ranging from about shortly before 700 AD to 1000 AD. And that Zen has a very different flavor from modern Japanese Zen. And so, of course, many of the people who go to study Zen in Japan disapprove of Dr. Suzuki thoroughly and also naturally of my exposition of Zen because we don't make a great fetish of studying Zen by sitting. In Japan today, they sit and they sit and they sit. R.H. Blythe asked a Zen master, what would you do if you had only one half hour left to live? And he said, I would do Zazen, which means he would sit like the Buddha here and uh, practice meditation. And Blythe had given him several choices. Would you like to listen to your favorite music? Would you have a dinner? Would you get drunk? Would you like the company of a beautiful woman? Uh, would you take a walk? What would you do? Or would you just go on with your daily business as if nothing was going to happen? In other words, would you wind up your watch? So he was very disappointed in this answer. And he said, you know, sitting is only one way of doing Zen. Buddhism speaks of the four dignities of man. Walking, standing, sitting, and lying. And so Zazen is simply the Japanese word for sitting Zen. There must also be walking Zen, standing Zen, and lying Zen. You should know, for example, how to sleep in a Zen way. That means to sleep thoroughly. Zen has been described as when hungry eat, when tired sleep. And when the student got that description, he said, well, doesn't everybody do that? And the master said, they don't. When hungry, they don't just eat, but think of 10,000 things. When tired, they don't just sleep, but dream innumerable dreams. So in a sense, this sounds like the old Western truism. Whatever you, your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. But that's not the same thing as Zen. A lot of people like to see if they could sum up Zen in that way. In the Latin motto of the school I used to go to in England, Age dum agis, act when you act, or while you act. There's a famous story which beautifully illustrates the current relationships between East and West. Paul Reps who wrote, uh, or rather drew, a lovely book called Zen Telegrams, once asked a Zen master to sum up Buddhism in one phrase. And he said, don't act, but act. So Reps was simply delighted, because he thought the master had said, don't act, 
but act. And that, of course, would be the Taoist principle of Wu Wei, of action in the spirit of not being separate from the world, realizing so fully that you are the universe too, that your action on it is not an interference, but a, an expression of the totality. But the master's English was very bad indeed, and Paul Reps had misunderstood him. He had said, don't act, bad act. <laughs> and you know, that is the sort of attitude that all clergy develop over the centuries. You know how it is when you go to church, if you do. So often the sermon boils down to, my dear people, you ought to be good. And everybody knows that, but hardly anybody knows how. Or even what good is. The fascination of Zen to the West is that it promises a sudden insight into something that is always supposed to take years and years and years. The psychoanalysts, if you're mixed up, they tell you the troubles you've got yourself into over all these years can't be undone in a day. And therefore it will take many, many sessions, maybe twice a week for several years for you to get straightened out. The Christians say that if you embark on a path of spiritual discipline, you get yourself a spiritual director and uh, submit yourself to the will of God but you may not get into the high states of contemplative prayer for very many years. The Hindus, the Vedanta Society people, the Buddhists also say will require many long years of meditation, very hard concentration, very difficult practice, and stern discipline. And then maybe you will make enough progress in this life to become a monk in your next life and then you'll make enough progress to enter some of the preliminary stages leading to Buddhahood. But it's all likely to take you many, many incarnations. But when this artist Hasegawa was asked, how does one see into Zen? He said, it may take you three seconds. It may take you 30 years. I mean that. And so you see there is always the possibility that it may take only three seconds. Zen literature abounds with stories, you see, in which there's a dialogue, or what is called in Japanese mondo, which means question-answer, between a Zen teacher and his student. And these dialogues are fascinatingly incomprehensible. But it always seems to be that at the end of this swift interchange, the student gets the point. Sometimes he doesn't. I gave a book of these dialogues once to a friend of mine who was deeply interested in Eastern philosophy. He said, I haven't understood a word of it, but it's cheered me up enormously. <laughs> so this book called the Mumonkan, which means the barrier with no gate, or the gateless gate, contains such stories as 
the student, I say student rather than monk, because Zen students are not monks in our sense of the word monk. Our monks take life vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And to make the grade, you're expected to spend your whole life in the monastic state. But I call the Zen monk a student because he's more like a student in a theological seminary. He may stay much longer than the usual three years. He may stay 30 years or so. But it's always uh, possible for him to leave with dignity and to graduate and to be go into lay life or become a regular priest who keeps charge of a temple, can get married and have a family. And uh, only very few graduates of a Zen monastery become Roshi, that Roshi means simply old teacher. That is the man in charge of the spiritual development of the students. So one of these students in the book says to the master Joshu, I have been here in this monastery for some time and I've had no instruction from you. The master said, have you had breakfast? Yes. Then go wash your bowl. And the monk was awakened. Now you may think that the moral of this story is uh, do the work that's nearest, though it's dull at whiles, helping when you meet them, lame dogs over styles. <laughs> <laughs> or that the bowl might be a symbol of the great void, the all-containing universe. And uh, probably the monk had washed it already because they immediately after eating in Japan and China in a monastery, they would take tea and pour it into the bowl and swill it around, wash it and wipe it out. So maybe he had already washed the bowl. And in that case, you might think that the master was saying, don't gild the lily. Don't, to use a real nice Zen phrase, don't put legs on a snake or a beard on a eunuch. No, the point of that story is so clear that that's what's difficult about it. And all these stories resemble jokes in this sense. A joke is told to make you laugh. When you get the point of a joke, you laugh spontaneously. But if the point has to be explained to you, you don't laugh so well, you force a laugh. There is some kind of sudden impact between the punchline and the laugh. And so in exactly the same way with these stories, there is expected to be something else than laughter, which is sudden insight into the nature of being. Nature of being, that sounds, very, again, very abstract. But it was, go wash your bowl. So, another story in this book concerns a master who said, when a cow walks out of the enclosure, the corral. The horns and head, the four legs and the body all get through 
but not the tail. How is it that the tail can't get through? And nobody could answer this. Another story it tells of a certain master called Bai Zhang, who was so good that he had hundreds of students, and they couldn't all be housed in one monastery. So he had to find one of the students who could also be a master. And so he arranged a test. He put down a pitcher in front of them all and said, without making an assertion or without making a denial, tell me, what is this? And the senior monk said it couldn't be called a piece of wood. And the teacher didn't accept this answer. But the monastery cook came forward and kicked the pitcher over and walked away. And he got the job. And the commentator remarks, maybe he wasn't so smart after all, for he gave up an easy job for a difficult one. <laughs> when an inquirer about Zen came to a master, often, you know, they approach a Zen master with a kind of key question. What is the fundamental principle of Buddhism? Or why did the bearded barbarian come from the West? Because Zen is supposed to have been brought into China by a Hindu named Bodhidharma. And Bodhidharma is always represented as having a huge bushy beard and very fierce eyes. Now, Bodhidharma always insisted that he had nothing to teach. And so, why did he come? That's one of the fundamental questions. You might say to me, I've often said uh, when I'm giving a lecture, I'm not trying to improve you. I'm not trying to uh, persuade you to a certain point of view. That is to say, like a preacher would convert somebody. In fact, I have nothing to tell you at all. Because were I to presume that I had something to tell you, I would be like a person who picked your pocket and sold you your own watch. So you might say, then, why do I talk? You might ask the sky, why are you blue? The clouds, why do you float around? Birds, why do you sing? And we've been busy trying to invent explanations for all this. And so there's this great Zen saying. One of the old masters said, when I was a young man and knew nothing of Buddhism, mountains were mountains and waters were waters. But when I began to understand a little Buddhism, mountains were no longer mountains and waters no longer waters. In other words, when one starts scientific and philosophical inquiries, everything gets explained away in terms of its causes or other things that go with it. Or one sees that all the things in the world, what we think are separate things, are as things illusions. There is nothing separate. So, but he said at the end, but when I had thoroughly understood Mountains were mountains, and waters are waters. 
So this is what's called direct pointing. A Zen master was once talking with me, and he said, when water goes out of the wash basin down the drain, does it go clockwise or anti-clockwise? <laughs> and this was all phrased in the middle of a very ordinary conversation. And, you know, it just seemed like a speculative question. And I said, oh, it might go either. He said, no, like this. Now he said, which came the first, egg or hen? I said, tuk, 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 tuk. <laughs> Now, he said, that's the point. <laughs> Now, it is saying too much, I warn you, to say that Zen is trying to point to the physical universe so that you could look at it without forming ideas about it. That is saying too much, but it is the general idea. It's in the direction of being the right idea. Zen people speak of the virtue of what they call mushin, which means no mind, or munen, no thought. That red lantern says munen on it, no thought. This is not an anti-intellectual attitude. The ordinary simple person is just as bamboozled by thinking as a university professor. You can think intellectually in a no-think way. That's the art. It doesn't mean not to have any thoughts at all. It means not to be fooled by thoughts, not to be hypnotized by the forms of speech and uh, images that we have for the world, not to be hypnotized by them into thinking that that is the way the world really is. So if I say, this is a fan, it isn't. To begin with, fan is a noise. And this doesn't make the noise fan, but just whoosh. But it can be many other things than a fan. It could be a back scratcher. Very well. All sorts of things. Don't let words limit the possibilities of life. Actually, this fan has an inscription on it written by a Zen master who is a hundred years old. And it says, I don't understand, I don't know anything about it. So that goes back to the story of Bodhidharma, that when he first came to China, sometime a little before 500 AD, he was interviewed by the Emperor Wu of Liang. The Emperor was a great patron of Buddhism and said, we have caused many monasteries to be built, monks and nuns to be ordained, and the scriptures to be translated into Chinese. What is the merit of this? And Bodhidharma said, no merit whatever. Well, that really set the Emperor back because the popular understanding of Buddhism is that you do good things like that, re religious things, and you acquire merit. And this leads you to better and better lives in the future so that you will eventually become liberated. 
And so his, he was completely set back. So he said, well, what is the first principle of the holy doctrine? And Bodhidharma said, vast emptiness and nothing holy. Or in vast emptiness there is nothing holy. So the emperor said, who is it then that stands before us? The implication being, aren't you supposed to be a holy man? And Bodhidharma said, I don't know. So the poem says, plucking flowers to which the butterflies come, Bodhidharma says, I don't know. And another poem like it, if you want to know where the flowers come from, even the god of spring doesn't know. So anybody who says that he knows what Zen is, is a fraud. Nobody knows. Just like you don't know who you are. All this business about your name and your accomplishments, your certificates, what your friends say about you, you know very well that's not you. But the problem to know who you are is the problem of smelling your own nose. When the great Japanese master Dogen came back from China in about the year 1200 to bring his school of Zen into Japan, they asked him, what did you learn in China? He said, the eyes are horizontal, the nose is perpendicular. <laughs> this man went on to write a tremendous book about Zen. They're so contradictory, these people. Don't expect consistency out of a Zen master. Big, big book called the Shobo Genzo. I talked with the Zen master about this book in Japan, and he said, oh, he said, that's a terrible book. It explains everything so clearly. <laughs> it gives the show away. He said, you don't need any book for Zen. So you see, it is this kind of way of going about things, this method of Zen, that has so fascinated the West. And everybody who, who reads about Zen wonders if somehow, you see, this understanding is right under your nose. You know how it is sometimes you get a crowd of people to come into a room and you put something in the room that's absurd. Like suppose there was a balloon floating on the ceiling. People could come in and not notice it at all. Or, uh, you know, somebody puts on something weird, some kind of a funny necktie or something. And you say to a person, well, haven't you noticed? <laughs> a woman in a new dress, you know? Haven't you noticed? I said, well, no, what, what, what is it? What, what, what? You know, it's right under your nose. They're staring you in the face, but you don't see it. And Zen is exactly like that. It is very obvious. The master Bokuju was asked, we have to dress and eat every day, and how do we escape from all that? In other words, how do we get out of routine? And he said, we dress, we eat. 
He said, I don't understand. Bokuju said, if you don't understand, put on your clothes and eat your food. <laughs> Another Zen master in quite recent times was interviewing a student. You see, all these stories I'm telling you are connected, and what I want you to do is to grasp intuitively the connection. I was uh, interviewing a student, Western student, and he said, um, get up and walk across the room. He got up and walked and came back. He said, where are your footprints? <laughs> Another monk asked Joshu, what is the way? Tao in Chinese, the Tao. He said, your everyday mind is the way. How do you get into accord with it? He said, when you try to accord, you deviate. So, here is this extraordinary phenomenon. Now, let me say, having presented you with all these fireworks, let me say a few sober things about Zen as a historical phenomenon. Zen is a subdivision of Mahayana Buddhism. And as you know, that is the school of Buddhism which is concerned with realizing Buddha nature in this world. Not necessarily by going off to the mountains or by renouncing family life, everyday life, etc., etc., as if that were an entanglement, but realizing in the midst of life the possibility of becoming a Buddha. And uh, so... The great ideal personality of Mahayana Buddhism is the Bodhisattva, a word now applied to somebody who has attained nirvana, but instead of disappearing, comes back in many, many guises. There's a famous painting of one of the Bodhisattvas in the form of a prostitute. And Bodhisattvas in Zen art are often represented as bums, there's the beautiful one over there, painted by Sengai, of the bum Hote, or Putai in Chinese, who's always immensely fat. And he's saying, Buddha is dead. Maitreya, who is supposed to be the next Buddha, hasn't come yet. I had a wonderful sleep and didn't even dream about Confucius. And he's just stretching and yawning as he wakes up. So, Zen is Mahayana, Indian Mahayana Buddhism, translated into Chinese, and therefore deeply influenced by Taoism and Confucianism. Zen monks brought Confucian ideas to Japan. And the Origins of Zen lie, actually, around the year 414, at which time a great Hindu scholar by the name of Kumarajiva was translating with a group of assistants the Buddhist sutras into Chinese. One of his students taught that all beings whatsoever have the capacity to become Buddha, 
to become enlightened. Even rocks and stones. And that even heretics and evil doers have the Buddha nature or Buddha potentiality in them. And everybody said he was a dreadful heretic. But then a text called the Nirvana Sutra came from India which said precisely that. So everybody had to admit that this man was right. He also began to teach that awakening must be instantaneous. It's a kind of all-or-nothing state. I don't mean that there aren't degrees of its intensity, but once you see the principle, you see the whole thing. As they say, when the bottom falls out of the bucket, all the water goes together. Those men then promulgated the way of sudden awakening. Bodhidharma came later, and he is supposed in legend to have been followed by a line of six patriarchs, of which he was the first. The second was named Eka, I'm using the Japanese pronunciation, who was formerly a general of the army. Then the third was Sosan, who wrote the Shinjinmei, which is the most marvelous little summary of Buddhism in verse. And so on till they came to Eno, the sixth patriarch. You know perhaps more familiarly his Chinese name, Huinang. He died in 715 AD. He's the real founder of Chinese Zen. The man who synthesized the whole thing and was the at least his collected discourses, are contained in what is called the Platform Sutra. And any student of Zen should read the Platform Sutra. But Eno really fused Zen with the Chinese way of doing things. And he emphasized very thoroughly, do not think you are going to attain Buddhahood by sitting down all day and keeping your mind blank. Because a lot of those students who practiced dhyana, which is the Sanskrit for chan, which is the Chinese for zen, which is in turn Japanese, means meditation, or contemplation perhaps would be a better translation in English. And everybody thought that the proper way to contemplate was to be as still as possible. But according to Zen, that is to be a stone Buddha instead of a living Buddha. Now I can knock a stone Buddha on the head, clunk, and it has no feelings. And so it's a stone Buddha. There was a famous Zen master called Tanka, who went to a little lonely temple on a freezing cold night. And he took the Buddha image, one of the Buddha images off the altar, split it up and made a fire. And when the attendant of the temple came in in the morning, he was horrified. Broke at the image, and Tankas took his stick, started raking in the ashes. And the temple priest said, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for the sali, that is to say the jewels, that are supposed to be found in the body of a genuine Buddha when he's cremated. So the priest said, you couldn't expect to find sali from a wooden Buddha. In that case, said Tankor, let me have that other Buddha for my fire. 
that you see the difference between living Buddha and stone Buddha. But a person who thinks that in order to be awakened, you have to be heartless, to have no emotions, no feelings, that you couldn't possibly lose your temper or get angry or feel annoyed or depressed. Those people haven't got the right idea at all. If that's your ideal, said Eno, you might just as well be a block of wood or a piece of stone. What he wanted you to understand is that your real mind, while all those emotions are going on, is imperturbable. Just like when you move your hand through the sky, you don't leave a track. The birds don't stain the blue when they pass by. And when the water reflects the image of the geese, the reflection doesn't stick there. So to be pure-minded in the Zen way, or clear-minded is a better way of translating it, is not to have no thoughts. It's not a question of not thinking about dirty things. One great master of the Tang dynasty, when asked, what is Buddha? Believe it or not, answered, a dried turd. So it's not that kind of purity. It is purity, clarity, in the sense that your mind isn't sticky. You don't harbor grievances. You don't be attached to the past. You go with it, with life. Life is flowing all the time. That is the Tao, the flow of life. You are going along with it whether you want to or not. You're like people in a stream. You can swim against the stream, but you'll still be moved along by it. And all you'll do is wear yourself out in futility. But if you swim with the stream, the whole strength of the stream is yours. Of course, the difficulty that so many of us have is finding out which way the stream is going. But suddenly, as it goes, all the past vanishes. The future has not yet arrived. And there is only one place to be, which is here and now. And there is no way of being anywhere else, none whatever. If you understand that thoroughly, your task is finished. You then become instantaneous and also momentous. So this was Eno's principle. As I said, he died in 715 and he left five very great disciples who taught substantially the same sort of thing. But as things go, then these disciples had disciples and those disciples had disciples and there's a genealogy and Zen broke into what are called five houses. And these, uh, some of them didn't go on Zen went on in two main forms. One is called by the Japanese Rinzai Zen after the great master Rinzai who lived towards the end of the ninth century. And the Soto school comes from another line 
and they have a slightly different emphasis. Soto is more serene in its approach, Rinzai more gutsy. Uh, Rinzai people use the koan method in Zen study, Soto people don't, at least not in the same way. But this period between the death of the sixth patriarch, Eno, and about the year 1000 is the golden age of Zen. This, these were the really formative years. And after that, Zen began to decline in China. It became mixed up with other forms of Buddhism, and it suffered the fate of many, many forms of meditation type or yoga type discipline. It got a little bit sidetracked into occult and psychic matters, what are called in Buddhism Siddhi, or the development of supernormal powers. For Zen, this is completely beside the point. But it got involved with Chinese alchemy, with Taoistic alchemy, and all sorts of foolishness in that direction. But a very strong strain of Zen went to Japan, the first being in about 1130, the monk Eisai, and then about 1200, the monk I told you about, Dogen, who founded the great, beautiful, gorgeous, galoptious monastery at Eheji, which exists to this day. Now, in this golden age of Chinese Zen, the main method of study was walking Zen rather than sitting Zen. All monks were great travelers, and they walked for miles and miles through fields and mountains, visiting temples to see if they could find a master who would cause their spark to flash to get what is called in Mandarin, Wu, or in Japanese, Satori, or in Cantonese, um. This always rather fascinates me, the way this character is written. The word I in Chinese is sometimes represented by this right-hand side of the character alone. Five mouths, five senses. This one means your mind or heart, the heart-mind, shin. Now when we say well, something very surprising happened, my heart came into my mouth. Here it comes into all five. So this character means awakening. It's the same in a way as the Sanskrit bodhi, awakening from the illusion of being a separate ego locked up in a bag of skin discovering that you are the whole universe. And of course, if you do discover that, and you do see into it all of a sudden, it's a shock, because your whole common sense is turned directly inside out. Everything is the same as you've always seen it, but completely different. Because you know who you are. You know that, uh, what the devil were you worrying about? What was all that fuss? What was all that to do? Well, you see, it was part of the game. 
everything from one point of view is fuss and to do. To do, to do. What is there to do? But when you wake up, you see, and discover that all this to do wasn't you, what you thought was you, but was the entire works, which we can just call it, that you're it and it is it and everything is it and it does all things that are done, then that is a great surprise. But it sounds tasteless. It sounds empty. It sounds void. Because if I say, well, you're all it, that is a statement without the slightest logical sense. Because we don't know what is it unless there's something that isn't it. But if it's both all is's and all isn'ts, then we can't think about it. Nevertheless, it is highly possible to see that that's so in a way that's so vivid it brings your heart into all your five mouths. Out of Your Mind now continues with the next lecture from the World as Just So lecture series. In this morning's talk, I was going into some of the fundamental features of Zen. And today, I want to concentrate on that aspect of Zen practice, which is called in Chinese, Mo Chi Chu, or going straight ahead. A master who was once asked, what is the Tao, the way, replied, walk on. Actually, go, as we say, go, man, go, go, go. <laughs> and it is this aspect of Zen which is what is truly understood by detachment or having a mind that isn't sticky and that isn't stopped at any point in its whole working. To be stopped at a certain point is what is called having a doubt. As when one fumbles or wobbles or hesitates about something, trying to find the right solution for the circumstances by thinking it out in a situation where there really is no time to think it out. So that when a Zen teacher asks his disciple a question, he expects an immediate answer, as it were, without thought or premeditation. They speak in Zen, they use a phrase, to have a mind of no deliberation. And they also speak of a kind of person, a man who doesn't depend on anything. That is to say, on a formula, on a theory, on a belief to govern his action. And this person who doesn't stick anywhere is like Dante's image at the end of the Paradiso where he says in the presence of the vision of God, but my volition now and my desires were moved as a wheel revolving evenly by love that moves the sun and other stars. 
and the image of the wheel which is not too tight on its axle and not too loose that is really with the axle is the Zen principle of not being attached not being sticky it's very difficult for us to function in that way because we've been brought up to believe that there are two sides to ourselves one the animal side and the other the human and civilized side and these are expressed in what Freud calls the pleasure principle which he classifies with the animal side with the id and the other the reality principle which he puts on the side of society and the superego and man is so split that he is in a constant fight between these two theosophists sometimes speak of our having two selves the higher self which is spiritual and the lower self which is merely psychic the ego and therefore the problem of life is to make the one self the higher one take charge of the lower as a rider takes charge of a horse but the problem that constantly arises is how do you know that what you think is your higher self isn't really your lower self in disguise when a thief is robbing a house and the police enter on the ground floor the thief goes up to the second floor and when the police follow up the stairs he goes higher and higher until at last he gets out to the rooftop and in the same way when one really feels oneself to be the lower self that is to say to be a separate ego and then the moralists come along they are of course the police and say you ought not to be selfish then the ego dissembles and tries to pretend that it's a, he's a good person after all and therefore one of the ways of doing this is for the ego to say I believe I have a higher self and I would say why do you believe that do you know the higher self no if I knew it I would behave differently but I'm trying to get there well why are you trying to get there well then the police wouldn't come around then the moralists wouldn't preach at me then I could feel that I was doing my duty behaving as a proper member of society but all this is a great phony front if you don't know that there is a higher self and you believe that there is one on whose authority do you believe this you say oh such and such a teacher Buddha Jesus Shankara the Upanishads said that we have a higher self and I believe it Catholics sometimes say they believe their religion because they're told to and they have to be obedient the catechism starts out I mean the Baltimore catechism it starts out we are bound to believe that there is but one God the Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth etc and they make jokes about the Protestants and say they don't have real authority in Protestant Church because everybody interprets the Bible according to his own opinion but we have an authoritative interpretation of the Bible but this always screens out the fact 
that it is fundamentally a matter of your own opinion that you accept the authority of the church to interpret the Bible. You cannot escape in all matters of belief from opinion. In other words, it must become clear to you that you yourself create all the authorities you accept. And if you create them in order to dissimulate, in order to pretend that your motivations and your character are different, that you would like them to be different, this is the same old principle of the separate self trying to improve itself so that it will live longer or survive in the spiritual world or attain the riches and the progress of enlightenment. And the whole thing is phony. So in Zen, a duality between higher self and lower self is not made. Because if you believe in the higher self, this is a simple trick of the lower self. If you believe that there is no really lower self, that there is only the higher self, but that somehow or other the higher self has to shine through, the very fact that you think that it has to try to shine through still gives validity to the existence of a lower self. If you think you have a lower self or an ego to get rid of and then you fight against it, nothing strengthens the delusion that it exists more than that. So this tremendous schizophrenia in human beings of thinking that they are rider and horse, soul in command of body, or will in command of passions, wrestling with them, all that kind of split thinking simply aggravates the problem. And we get more and more split. And so we have all sorts of people engaged in an interior conflict which they will never, never resolve because the true self, either you know it or you don't. If you do know it, then you know it's the only one and the other so-called lower self just ceases to be a problem. It becomes something like a mirage and you don't go around hitting at mirages with a stick or trying to put reins on them. You just know that they're mirages and walk straight through them. But if you are brought up to believe yourself split, I remember my mother used to say to me when I did naughty things, she said, Alan, that's not like you. <laughs> so I had, you know, some conception of what was like me in my better moments, that is to say, in the moments when I remembered what my mother would like me to do. And so that split is implanted in us all. And because of our being split-minded, we are always dithering. Is the choice that I am about to make of the higher self or of the lower self? Is it of the spirit or is it of the flesh? Is the word that I have received of the Lord or is it of the devil? And nobody can decide. Because if you knew how to choose, you wouldn't have to. 
in the so-called moral rearmament movement, which is a very significant title, you test your messages that you get from God in your quiet time by comparing them with standards of absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute love, and so on. But of course, if you knew what those things were, you wouldn't have to test. You would know immediately. And do you know what those things are? The more one thinks about the question, what would absolute love be? Supposing I could set myself the ideal of being absolutely loving to everybody, what would that imply in terms of conduct? Well, you can think about that till all is blue, because you could never get to the answer. The problems of life are so subtle that to try to solve them with vague principles, as if those vague principles were specific instructions, is completely impossible. So, it is important to overcome split-mindedness, but what is the way? Where can you start from if you're already split? A Taoist saying is that when the wrong man uses the right means, the right means work in the wrong way. So what are you to do? How can you get off it and get moving? Fundamentally, of course, you have to be surprised into it. Winthrop Sargent, not so long ago, interviewed a great Zen priest in Kyoto who posed to him the question, who are you? And he said, well, I'm Winthrop Sargent. And the priest laughed. No, he said, I don't mean that. I mean, who are you really? Well, then he went into all sorts of abstractions about his being a particular human being and so on, who was a journalist and so on, and the priest just laughed and said, no. Then the, the, he did, the priest just tossed off the conversation and a little later made a joke, and Sergeant laughed. And he said, there you are! <laughs> there was an army officer who once came to a Zen master and said, I have heard a story about a man who kept a goose in a bottle and it was uh, growing very rapidly and he didn't want to break the bottle and he didn't want to hurt the goose, so how would he get it out? The Zen master didn't answer the question at all but simply say, changed the subject. Finally, the officer got up to leave and uh, he went over to the door and suddenly the Zen master called out, Oh, officer! And he turned around and said, Yes? The master said, there, it's out. <laughs> so in the same way, if I say to you, good morning, you say, good morning. Nice day, isn't it? Yes. Or if I hit you, you know, boom, you say, ouch. And you don't stop to hesitate to give these answers and these responses. You don't think about it when I say good morning. Unless you're a psychiatrist, what could I be, <laughs> what could I be meaning? So you, you respond. So in exactly the same way, that kind of response, which doesn't have to be a deliberate response, a response of a no-deliberating mind, is a response of a Buddha mind 
or an unattached mind. But you must not imagine that this is necessarily a quick response because if you get hung up on the idea of responding quickly, the idea of quickness will be itself a form of obstruction. Very often when Dr. Suzuki is asked a question, very complicated question by some philosophy major at Columbia when he's giving lectures there, he's silent for a full minute and then says, yes. <laughs> and this is exactly as spontaneous a response as it would be if uh, he had answered immediately. Because during the period of silence, he is not fishing around to think of something to say. He is not at all embarrassed at being silent or at not knowing the answer. So if you don't know the answer, you can be silent. If nobody asks a question, you can be silent. There's no need to be embarrassed about it or to be stuck on it. But you cannot overcome being stuck if you think that somehow you would be guilty if you were stuck. When you are perfectly free to feel stuck or not stuck, then you're unstuck. Because actually, nothing can stick on the real mind and you will find this out if you watch the flow of your thoughts. There is an expression in Chinese which means the flow of thoughts or what we call in literary criticism, stream of consciousness. And they put the character for thought three times. Nyan, nyan, nyan. And so you will notice that thought follows thought follows thought when you are just ruminating. And those thoughts arise and go like waves on the water. All the time they come and go. And when they go, they are as if they had never been here. So actually this shows your mind doesn't stick. Really. You can get the illusion of it sticking by, for example, cycling the same succession of thoughts over and over again. And that gives a sense of permanence in the same way as when you revolve a cigarette butt in the dark. You get the illusion of there being a solid circle, although there is only the single point of fire. And it is from this connecting of thoughts that we get the sensation that behind our thoughts there is a thinker who controls them and experiences them. Although the notion that there is a thinker is just one member in the stream of thoughts. For example, if you get a certain kind of rhythm that goes diggy 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 boop diggy 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 boop diggy 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 boop diggy 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 boop the boop is a part of the rhythm but it can be used as a cue. So you get, in relation to diggy, 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 boop, you get thought, 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 thinker, thought, 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 thinker. And if this happens regularly enough and long enough, you get the illusion of there being uh, someone who thinks apart from the stream of thoughts which come and go, the stream of experiences. 
and we use such absurd phrases, not only as thinking our thoughts, but feeling our feelings, seeing sights and hearing sounds. But you must understand it is perfectly obvious that seeing a sight is seeing, hearing a sound is hearing, feeling a feeling is feeling. So in the same way, thinking a thought is thinking. But you get split-minded, you see, and so you uh, get I and me and the I who ought to or must control me uh, as a sensation of some real entity that stands aside from thoughts and uh, chooses among them, controls them, regulates them, uh, and so on. Actually, this is a way to have one's thoughts not controlled. The more there is this duality of the separate thinker standing aside from the thoughts, or the separate feeler watching or feeling the feelings, the more the stream of feelings is coaxed into self-protective activity, into getting more and more like a stuck record, the purposes of which are to protect and to aggrandize and enlarge the status of the supposed thinker. When uh, Joshu, who was a Tang Dynasty Zen master, was asked, uh, he had made some reference to the enlightened mind being like a mind of a child. And he said, well, what is the mind of a child? And he said, a ball in a mountain stream. Why? Thought follows thought instantaneously without interruption. So the saying, walk or sit as you will, but whatever you do, don't wobble. Now, we can see this very clearly from confusions we can get into in activity. I have just said we can see this very clearly from confusions we get into in activity. What kind of a statement is that? When I raise the question, what kind of a statement was it that I just made, I'm beginning to talk about talking. And one can do that, provided you don't try to do it while you're making the original statement. If I want to say something about what I've just said, then I must do it later, mustn't I? But not at the same time. I cannot say, you are a fool, and at the same time say, I'm giving you an insult in so many words. I cannot say, or in mathematics, I cannot write down a certain equation, and as I'm writing it down, simultaneously state what kind of an equation this is. Unless, of course, I invent an exceedingly complex language which talks about itself as it goes along. But in the ordinary way, people get completely mixed up by that. In the middle of being about to say to somebody anything, you start to think about whether this is the right thing to say, and you start wobbling. You get, in other words, too much feedback. And too much feedback makes any mechanism go crazy. So in the same way, 
when you are very, very aware of a difference between the deeds and the doer, and the doer while doing the deeds is always sort of commenting on them, the doer never really gets with it. In other words, you are about to strike a nail and you wonder as you are about to hit it, is this the right place to put it? And so you probably hit your thumbnail instead of the nail because you don't go right through with hitting that nail. This is not saying, let me mark this again, it is not saying that there should be no criticism of thought. But if you criticize thought while thinking, as if there were a critic thinker standing aside from the stream of thought, then you get all balled up. And that is exactly what happens in the process of attachment, or what are called in Buddhist klesha, which mean disturbing confusions of the mind. And you see, this kind of confusion is something which, to which the human organism is peculiarly liable because the human organism has language, has, you see, thinking is silent language. And I mean language in the most inclusive sense of the word, not only words, but also images and numbers, notation. Just because then we can talk about anything, we can talk about talking, we can talk about thinking, we can talk about ourselves, as if we could stand aside and say, said I to myself, said I. <laughs> All we are actually doing is making a second thought, or thought stream, which comments on the one that went before. And then pretending that the second stream is a different stream than the first. That's because there are built into our minds all kinds of phony images about memory. We think, for example, of memory by analogy with engraving. In order to remember something, we write it down. And so we have a flat and stable piece of paper and we make marks on it with a pencil and they stay there. So we begin to think, is mental memory something of the same kind? Is there something stable upon which the passage of thoughts makes an impression? We say, he impressed me very much. This was a lasting impression on my mind. As if we were tablets. Indeed, the philosopher Locke used the expression tabula rasa, or clean slate, to describe the mind of a child. This is a mind which has not yet collected any memories, as if there were some sort of surface which accumulated these things and preserved them, and that's me. But you see, this superstition is related to a much more ancient superstition that the world consists of two elements, one of which is stuff and the other of which is form. This is a myth based on a model of the world which is fundamentally ceramic. God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. And so there is a stuff 
And so there are forms engraved in it or imposed on it or stamped on it like a seal is stamped on wax. What is stuff like apart from form? What is form like apart from stuff? All those problems which have bothered people for centuries are based on asking the question in the wrong way, on having used the wrong image for the process. Actually, uh, since nobody ever saw a piece of shapeless stuff and nobody ever saw a piece of stuffless shape, the whole thing really is saying that uh, they are the same. And uh, there isn't any necessity even to think of a difference between them. Even the contrasting words, form and substance, or form and matter, are a nuisance. There is process. There is the flow of thought. And the flow of thought doesn't have to happen to anyone. Experience does not have to beat upon an experiencer. There is all the time simply the one stream going on and we are convinced that we stand aside from it and observe it because we've been brought up that way. But you know, in your stream of thought and experience, I am an object and a very fleeting and passing one. And also in my stream of experience, you also are people who come and go. We are all, you see, living in the same world. We think there is me and there is an external world around me, but I am in your external world and you are in my external world. And if you think about that, you see we are all in one world, going along together. There isn't really the internal and the external. There is simply the process. It's very important to get rid of that illusion of duality between the thinker and the thought. So find out who is the thinker behind the thoughts. Who is the real genuine you? And so one of the methods that is used is shouting. the Zen master would say to a student, now, I want to hear you. I want to hear you say the word mu and really mean it. As I want to hear not just the sound, but the person who says it. Now produce for me that. He says, mu! And the Zen teacher says, no, no, not yet. Mu! And he says, it's only coming from your throat. I want to hear your belly, you know? And always, you see, it'll never come while the person is trying to make a differentiation between a true moo <laughs> and a false moo. <laughs> to act with confidence, you just do it. But since people are not used to that, it is necessary to set up protected situations in which it can be done. If we just in the ordinary way of social intercourse acted without deliberation, we would get into amazing confusions 
as when people say, always speak the truth, never tell a white lie. And they say exactly what is true and uh, what they think about other people. Well, they can raise a great deal of trouble. But the experience of Zen has been that there should be a kind of enclosure in which this kind of behavior can be done until the people are expert in it and know how to apply it in all situations. This concludes Session 7 of Out of Your Mind, Essential Listening from the Alan Watts Audio Archives. Our program continues with Session 8. The function of a Zen teacher is to put his students in all kinds of situations where in the normal course of social relations they would get stuck. By asking nonsensical questions, by making absurd remarks, by uh, all ways of unhinging things, and above all, keeping them stirred up with impossible demands to hear the sound of one hand, to, without moving, stop a ship sailing out on the water, or to stop the sound of a train whistle in the distance, magic, to touch the ceiling without getting up from one's chair, to take the four divisions of Tokyo out of your sleeve, to take Mount Fuji out of a pillbox. All these impossible questions are asked. And uh, in the ordinary way of interpreting these questions, we think, well, now, gee, how could we do that? See, that's a very difficult question that's been asked. And you have to think, what would I do to do that? Because we are caught up in a certain way of discourse, which the language game that we play and the social games, the production games, and the survival games that we play are good games. But we take them so seriously that we think that that is the only important thing. And this is to unstick us from that notion and realize that it would be just as good a game to drop dead now as to go on living. Is a lightning flash bad because it lives for a second as compared with the sun that goes on for billions of years? You can't make that sort of comparison because a world of lightning goes also with a world where there's a sun and vice versa. So long-lived creatures and short-lived creatures go together. That's the meaning of that saying. Uh, flowering branches grow naturally, some short, some long. So this then is a scene in, in a Zen community where spontaneous behavior is encouraged within certain limits. And as the student becomes more and more used to it, those limits are expanded. 
until eventually he can be trusted to go out on the street and behave like a true Zen character and get by perfectly well. You know what occasionally happens on the street when two people are walking down the sidewalk straight at each other and they both decide to move to the right together and then to the left together and they somehow get stuck and they can't pass each other. Zen teachers will pull just exactly that sort of stunt when going down a path and meet one of their students to see if they can get him in a tangle and can he escape from it. And you will find in everyday life that there is a very clear distinction between people who always seem to be uh, self-possessed and people who are dithering and nervous and don't quite know how to react in any given situation, always getting embarrassed because they have their life too strongly programmed. You said, I mean, this is a common marriage argument. You said you would do such and such a thing at such and such a time. And now you've changed your plans. Not that they really, the change of plans really caused any inconvenience, but just the feeling that when you say you will do something at a certain time, you ought to do it at that time, come hell or high water. Well, that's being very unadaptable. That's being a stone kind of sticky uh, thing. If it, after all, doesn't matter when we do it, and uh, somebody is offended because the time has been changed, that's simply because they are attached to punctuality as a fetish. And this is one of the great problems. This is causes many automobile accidents. Men rushing home to be on time for dinner when they stayed late either working or they had to stop for a drink at some bar or uh, when the girl feels that she has to, if she has a fussy husband and she feels she has to have the dinner ready at exactly a certain moment, she ruins the cooking. He'd rather have a faithful wife and a bad cook. <laughs> I hope I'm not treading on any toes. <laughs> So, you see, we spend an awful lot of energy trying to make our lives fit images of what life is or should be, which they could never possibly fit. So, Zen practice is in getting rid of these images. But it's, it's so explosive socially to do that, and it so worries people, they get vertigo, they get dizzy, they don't know which end is up. And this happens, you know, if you've ever been in one of those blab lab sessions, where uh, they call them tea groups, I think, or something like that, where the people gather together without any clear idea of what this gathering's about. They know it's somehow self-exploration, but, 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 but just how do you begin on that? And so somebody starts to push his idea, and then somebody else says, well, why are you trying to push your idea on us? And then they all get into an argument about the argument. And the most amazing confusions come about, but sometimes they all see what idiots they're being. And uh, then they, they learn to live together in a really open and spontaneous way. There was a very uh, uh, interesting dinner party once where a Zen master was present and there was a geisha girl who uh, served so beautifully and had such style that he suspected she must have some Zen training. 
And after a while, he, when she paused to fill his sake cup, he bowed to her and said, I'd like to give you a present. And she said, I would be most honored. And he took the iron chopsticks that are used for the hibachi, the charcoal brazier, moving the charcoal around. He picked up a piece of red-hot charcoal and gave it to her. Well, she instantly, she had very long sleeves on her kimono. She whirled the sleeves around her hands and took the hot charcoal, withdrew to the kitchen, dumped it, and changed her kimono because it was burnt through. Then she came back into the room, and after a suitable interval, she stopped before the Zen master and bowed to him and said, uh, I would like to give you, sir, a present. <laughs> and he said, uh, I would be very much honored. And of course, he was wearing a kimono, something like this. And uh, so she picked up a piece of coal and offered it to him. He immediately produced a cigarette and said, thank you, that's just what I needed. <laughs> Now, you know, in the same way that we have this in our culture, certain people who are comedians, who know how to make jokes and gags in a completely unprepared situation, face them with anything, and uh, they somehow come through. So that is exactly the same thing in a special domain as Zen. Only the, the, a master of Zen does this in every life situation. But the important thing is to be able to do this this is the secret. You must remember you can't make a mistake. Now, that's a very difficult thing to do. Because from childhood up, we have had to conform to a certain social game. And if you're going to conform to this game, you can make mistakes or not make mistakes. And so, this thing has gone into us all the time. You must do the right thing. There's certain conduct appropriate here, there's certain conduct appropriate there. And that sticks in us and gives us a double self all our lives long because we never grow up. Do you realize that the whole of life plays a game, which is a childhood game? There are three kinds of people. Top people, middle people, and bottom people. And there can't be any middle people unless there are bottom people and top people. There can't be any top people unless there are middle and bottom people. And so it goes. And everybody's trying to be in a top set. Well, if they're going to be there, there's got to be someone in a bottom set. And the people who do the right thing and the people who do the wrong thing. Here in Sausalito, we have this very, very plainly. Uh, there are the right people, the nice people who live up on the hill. Then there are the nasty people who live down here on the waterfront and they grow beards and they wear blue jeans and they smoke marijuana. And whereas the other people on the top of the hill uh, drive Cadillacs and uh, have wall-to-wall -wall carpeting and nicely mowed lawns, and uh, their particular kind of poison is alcohol. 
Uh, now, the people who live on the top of the hill know that they're nice people. But they wouldn't know they were nice people unless they had some nasty people to compare themselves with. <laughs> Every in-group requires an out-group, whereas the nasty people think they are the real far-out people, whereas those people, those hillbillies, are squares. <laughs> and they wouldn't be able to feel far out unless there were squares. See? These things simply go together. But when that is not seen, we play the games of getting on top of things all the time. And so we're in a constant state of competition as to if it's not I'm stronger than you, it's I'm wiser than you, I'm more loving than you, I'm more tolerant than you, I'm more sophisticated than you. It doesn't matter what it is, but this constant competition is going on. In terms of that competition, we can, of course, lose place and in that sense make mistakes. But what a Zen student is, is a person who is not involved in the status game. That's the real meaning of a monk. He is not keeping up with the Joneses. And to be a master, he must get to the point where he's not trying to be a master. The whole idea of your, your being better than anybody else simply doesn't make any sense at all. It is totally meaningless. Because you see everybody manifesting the marvel of the universe in the same way as the stars do. And the water and the winds and the animals. And you see them all as being in their right places and not being able really to make mistakes, although they may think they're making mistakes or not making mistakes and playing all these competitive games. But that's their game. Now, I only say, if that game begins to bore you and it begins to trouble you and give you ulcers and uh, all kinds of things, then you raise the problem of getting out of it. And therefore, you start to become interested in things like Zen. That is simply a symptom of your growing in a certain direction where you are tired of playing a certain kind of game. You are as naturally flowing in another direction as if a tree were putting out a new branch. So because you say, oh well, we people are interested in higher things, you see, that depends still on the differentiation of rank between the superior and the inferior people. But when you begin to see through that and grow out of that, you don't think any more of this superior and inferior classification. You don't think we are spiritual people who attend to higher things as distinct from these morons who are only interested in beer and television. <laughs> This is simply our particular form of life. Like there are crabs, and there are spiders, and there are sharks, and there are sparrows, and so on. The trouble with the human being is, like the trouble with certain animals, like the dinosaur, 
who evolved to the point where he was so big that he had to have two brains, a higher self in the head and a lower self in the rump. And uh, the difficulty was to get these two brains coordinated. But we have exactly the same trouble. And we are suffering from a kind of jitters that comes from being two-brained. Now, you see, I'm not saying that that jitters is bad. It's a potential step in evolution and an opportunity of growth. But remember, in the process of growth, the oak is not better than the acorn. Because what does it do? It produces acorns. Or you could say, just like I sometimes love to say, that a chicken is one egg's way of becoming others. <laughs> so an oak is an acorn's way of becoming other acorns. Where is the point of superiority? The first verse of that poem I just quoted, the flowering branches grow naturally, some short, some long, the first verse is, in the landscape of spring, there is nothing superior and nothing inferior. The flowering branches are naturally, some short, some long. So that's the point of view of being an outcast, in the sense of being outside the taking seriously of being involved in the social game and therefore being threatened by making mistakes, of doing the wrong thing, that is to say, of carrying into adult life one's childhood conditioning, where somebody is constantly yammering at you to play the game. So therefore, the preachers and the teachers take the same attitude towards their adult congregations that parents take to children and lecture them and tell them what they should do and uh, judges in courts feel also uh, entitled to give people lectures because they say those criminal types haven't grown up, but neither have the judges. It takes two to make a quarrel. So one can begin to think in a new way, in the polarity thinking, instead of being stuck with the competitive thinking of the good guys and the bad guys, the cops and the robbers, the capitalists and the communists, the, all these things which are simply uh, childishness. Now, of course, you recognize that if I, the moment I say that, it's like talking in English in order to show that the English language has limitations. And I am talking in a language that seems competitive to show that the competitive game has limitations. As if I were saying to all you cats here, look, I have something to tell you that is, and if you get this, you'll be in a better position than you were before you heard it. But I cannot speak to this group or the society or this language-speaking culture without using the language the gestures, the customs, etc., that you have. The Zen masters try to get around this by doing things suddenly that people just don't get. Well, what is this? Therefore, that is the reason why, this is the real reason why, Zen cannot be explained. 
you have to make, as it were, a jump from the valuation game of better people and worse people, in-groups and out-groups. And you can only make it by seeing that they all are mutually interdependent. So if we take this situation, let's say I would be talking to you and saying, look, uh, I have some very special thing that you've got to take notice of. Therefore, I am the in-group and I'm the teacher and you are the out-group. I know perfectly well that I cannot be the teacher unless you come here. And so that my status and my position is totally dependent on you. It isn't something you see, therefore I have first and then you get. These things arise mutually. So if you wouldn't come, I wouldn't talk. I wouldn't know uh, what to say even. Because <laughs> I've borrowed your language. <laughs> so that, that, that is the insight that things go together. Then, when you see that and aren't in competition, then you don't make a mistake because you don't dither. When I first learned the piano and uh, played these wretched scales, the teacher beside me had a pencil in her hand and she hit my fingers every time I made a wrong note. Consequent was I never learned to read music because I hesitated too long to play the note on time because I was always, is this, is this pencil going to land? See, and that gets built into your psyche. And so people are always, although they're adults and nobody is clubbing them around and screaming at them any longer, they hear the echoes of that screaming mama or that bombinating papa in the back of their heads all their life long. And so they adopt the same attitudes to their own children and the farce continues. Because there is no, I mean, I don't say that you shouldn't uh, lay down the law to children if you want them to play the social game. But you, if you lay down the law to your children, you must make provision later in life for them to be liberated. To go through a process of curing them from the bad effects of education. But you can't do that unless you too grow up, you see? Unless we grow up. Says I, including myself. <laughs> So that is the, the thing. Now, therefore, in the Zen scene, you would think that the master, as we know him and as we read about him, is an extremely authoritarian figure. That's the way he deliberately comes on at the beginning. He puts up a terrific show of being an awful dragon. And this screens out all sorts of people who don't have somehow the nerve to get into the work. But once you are in, a very strange change takes place. The master <coughs> becomes the brother. He becomes the affectionate helper of all those students, and they love him as they would a brother, rather than respect him as they would a father. And therefore, the students and masters, they make jokes about each other. They, uh, have a very curious kind of social relationship which has all the outward trappings of the authoritarian but everybody knows on the inside that that's a joke 
Liberated people have to be very cool. Otherwise, in a society which doesn't believe in equality and cannot possibly practice it, they would be considered extremely subversive. And therefore, great Zen masters wear purple and gold and carry scepters and sit in thrones. And uh, all this is carried on to cool it. And the outside world knows that they're all right. They have discipline, they have order, they're perfectly fine. <laughs>
And uh, so, but it's beautiful to listen to, and they haven't got uh, an educated Western ear yet to appreciate that kind of Oriental music. <laughs> well, now, aside from these many temples, each of which is in charge of a priest with his family, and some of them are having a hard time making a go of it these days, so they've become restaurants for very elegant food or <coughs> museums and all sorts of things. Now, the central, the guts of a Zen temple is what's called the Sodo. So, in Japanese, is the Sangha, the order of followers of the Buddha. Do simply means hall. So, the Sangha hall, or Sodo, is the center. And this consists of a number of rooms, but the main one, the actual Sodo itself, is a large long, spacious room with platforms on either side and a wide passage down the center. The platforms are six feet wide and each contains uh, a number of tatami mats which are measure six by three. And every monk is assigned to a mat. And in a, on a shelf behind the, the mat against the wall, he has all his possessions, which are very simple. And so the mat is his sleeping place and his meditation place. There is an image of the Bodhisattva Manjusri in the hall, more or less in the center of the passage between the platforms. Manjusri is a Bodhisattva they call him Monju in Japan, who holds in his hand a sword. And this sword is the sword of wisdom, or pragna, which cuts asunder all illusions. That is the dwelling place and the meditation place of the monks. And uh, then they have, of course, kitchens and uh, library, and they have special temples that the monks use for various services. Then aside from that, there are the quarters of the Kansho, who is the abbot or administrative head of the temple, and then the quarters of the Roshi, who is the spiritual teacher. There isn't in the Zen, uh, not in the Rinzai Zen school at any rate, exactly a hierarchy. Every temple is independent. There's no pope, no archbishop, but there is a fraternal relationship between all the temples of the Rinzai sect. The Soto sect have a little bit of a hierarchy, but still, on the whole, the Kansho, or administrative head of the temple, is the big boss. The Roshi is the respected boss, the man everybody's terrified of, at least on the outside, at any rate. Now, if you want to get into one of these institutions and study, they make it difficult. It's so different from the welcome attitude you get when you go into a Christian church. Here they repel you. <laughs> Westerners, of course, are treated with a certain amount of courtesy that is not ordinarily accorded to Japanese. But even then it's made difficult because they realize that a Westerner who's taken the trouble to learn Japanese and to get himself over the oceans and to live under unfamiliar conditions is certainly pretty serious about it. And there are a number of Western Zen monks, 
so funny. There's one at Eheiji who comes from San Francisco, and he's tremendously tall. And to see him with all the others is quite amusing. Anyway, the formal approach is that you arrive in your traveling gear at the gate. And the Zen monk's traveling gear is most picturesque. He wears a great mushroom on his head, enormous straw hat, about so wide. And then he has a black robe, rather shorter than a kimono, and he has white, long white tabi socks underneath, and gaita, which are the wooden sandals with uh, bridges on them to keep you high up a bit. Or he may wear just plain uh, waraji, which are straw sandals. Then he carries on the front his uh, little box in which are his eating bowls, his razor, his toothbrush, and such necessities of life. Well, when he arrives, he's told that the monastery is very poor and they can't afford to take on any more students and that the teacher is getting old and it might tax his strength and things like that. So he has to sit on the steps and he puts his traveling box in front of him. He takes off his big hat and he lays his head on the box, his forehead, and waits there all day. But he is invited in for meals to a special little guest house because no traveling monk can be refused hospitality. And he is admitted at night into this special place, but he is expected not to sleep, but to spend all night in meditation. In olden times, this went on for at least a week or ten days to test this fellow out. Then finally, the uh, assistant to the Roshi comes and tells him that uh, the Roshi maybe would have a talk with him. So you must remember the aspect of a Roshi to this young monk. He's a formidable fellow, usually an older man who has about him something that is difficult to put your finger on. There's a certain fierceness coupled with a kind of tremendous directness, a sense of somebody who sees right through you. And so he really poses to this young fellow, what do you want? Why did you come here? But he said, I came to be instructed in Zen. The teacher says, well, we don't teach anything here. There isn't anything in Zen to study. Well, the student knows, or thinks he knows, that this not anything which is studied in Zen is the real thing. That's, of course, as a Buddhist, he knows that what isn't anything is the, is the universe, the great void, the shunyata. And so he isn't phased by that. He says, well, nevertheless, you do have people who are working here and meditating under your instruction, and I'd like to join them. Well, maybe, but strictly on probation. And then, of course, all the details are taken. And he pays a ridiculously small fee, in modern Japan at any rate, to be able to stay in the monastery. It's very, very inexpensive. Now the teacher comes back and says, now you want to study Zen. Why? 
Well, because I'm oppressed by the rounds of birth and death, in other words, by the vicious circles of life in which I find myself, by suffering, by pain, and so on, and I want to be emancipated. The teacher says, who is it that wants to be emancipated? Well, that's a stopper. There was a good old story about one of these preliminary interviews. The master asks, first of all, very casual questions. Where's your hometown? What's your name? What did your father do? And uh, where did you go to college? Why is my hand so much like the Buddha's hand? And suddenly, you know, in midstream of an ordinary conversation, clunk, the student is blocked. And so there is devised the koan, K-O-A-N in Chinese, kung'an. And this means, literally, the word koan means a case, in exactly the same sense as we talk about a case in law which functions as a precedent for future cases. Koan should be translated case. The koans are based on stories, mondo, of the conversations between the old masters and their students. But you can make a koan immediately by such a question, why is my hand so much like the Buddha's hand? Or, who are you that asked this question? If the student tries to verbalize on that and say, well, I am so-and-so, he asks, who knows that you're so-and-so? How do you know that you know? Who knows that you know? Find out. In other words, the basic koan is always, who are you? Who is it that wants to escape from birth and death? And I won't take words for an answer. I want to see you. And all you are showing me at the moment is your mask. So then the student is sent back to the monk's quarters, the Sodo. And the chief of the, the Sodo, is called the Jikijitsu, is uh, then put in charge of him. And he teaches him how to behave, what the rules are, how to eat, and how to meditate. In the Zen sect, they sit on padded cushion, uh, about the thickness of the San Francisco telephone directory, which is an admirable substitute. And then, with crossed legs in the lotus posture, with the feet resting on the thighs, uh, like you always see a Buddha, they sit for half-hour periods. That's supposed to be the length of time it takes for a stick of incense to burn. And then, uh, uh, when wooden clappers are knocked together, they all get up, and they walk round and round the room, quite fast, at a kind of bum, 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 pace. And this keeps you awake. Then, at a given signal, they go back and meditate again. And constantly there is a monk, one on each side, carries a long, flat stick, shaped almost like this fan, in the sense that it's uh, thin at one end. And rounded at the other. And if this guy sees a monk who is slouching or sleeping or goofing off in some way, he very respectfully 
bows before him and the monk rests his head on his knees and this fellow takes the stick and hits him vigorously on the shoulders here like this now most apologists for Zen say this is not punishment it's simply to keep you awake don't you believe it I've investigated this and it's, it, it's, it's the same as the as the sort of um, British boys school uh, only it isn't it doesn't have the erotic qualities that the, the British floggings uh, do Zen people are cool about it but it is a kind of a fierce thing anyway the uh, point of the meditation the Zazen is that perhaps at the beginning one does nothing more than count your breathing so many breaths in t counting in tens just to allow your thoughts to become still Zen people do not close their eyes when they meditate nor do they close their ears they keep their eyes on the floor in front of them and they don't try to force away any sounds that are going on or any smell or any sensation whatever only they don't think about it and this can become an extraordinarily pleasant occupation all the little sounds of distant traffic of uh, birds of somebody carpentering somewhere and a hammer going dog barking or especially rain on the roof gorgeous they don't block that out but as time goes on instead of counting breathing they devote themselves to the koan problem which the Roshi has assigned what is the sound of one hand who were you before your father and mother conceived you when Joshu was asked does a dog have Buddha nature he replied no what is the meaning of no or move all sorts of these problems and so as time goes on every day the student goes to the teacher for what is called Sun Zen Sun Zen means studying Zen and he has to, to present a satisfactory answer to the koan now Sun Zen is the moment in the monastery when no holes are barred although there's a very formal approach to it the monk has to stop outside the uh, master's quarters and uh, make this mokugyo he does that three times and at a signal from the master which is ringing a bell in reply he goes in and sits down in front of the master and bows right down to the floor and then sits up and he repeats the koan that he's been given and he's supposed to answer it now the master if he's not satisfied with the answer may simply ring his bell which means interview over nothing doing 
or if he's still not satisfied, he may try to do something to hint the student as to which way to go, or puzzle him further, some sort of comment. But what happens is this. Do you see what kind of a situation has been set up here? The student is really being asked to be absolutely genuine. So if I said to you, now don't be self-conscious. <laughs> I want you to be perfectly sincere. And as a matter of fact, I'm a mind reader. And I know whether you're being sincere or not. I can see right down to that last little wiggly guzzle in the back of your mind. And if you think I can, you see, I'm putting you in a double bind. I'm commanding you to be genuine. How can you possibly do that on command? <laughs> Especially when the person you're confronted with is a father figure, an authority figure. And in Japan, the sensei, the teacher, is even a more authoritative figure than one's father, which is saying a lot. But you are being asked in the presence of this tiger to be completely spontaneous. Or it isn't, it isn't put in that way, you see, though. I mean, I'm describing this from the standpoint of a psychologist observing what's going on here. No, the thing you've got to do is you've got to hear the sound of one hand. And as your answers become more and more rejected, you get more and more desperate. And there is built up the state that is called the great doubt. The students do everything, you know. They've read all the old Zen stories, and they come in with pieces of rock and wood, and they try and hit the teacher. They, uh, they do everything they get, and no, nothing, nothing will do. I remember I had a friend studying in Kyoto, and uh, on the way to the master's quarters, you pass through a lovely garden with a pool, and he saw a bullfrog in the garden, and he grabbed this bullfrog. They're very tame in Japan. Nobody eats them. He put it in the sleeve of his kimono, and when he got in to give an answer to his koan, he produced the bullfrog. <laughs> And the master shook his head and said, mm -mm, too intellectual. <laughs> <laughs> of course, he meant not so much what we mean by intellectual, but too contrived, too premeditated. You know, you're just copying other people's Zen antics. And that's something you just can't get away with. Well, there does come a critical point of total desperation. And when the student reaches that point, the teacher really starts encouraging him. He says, now, come on, you're getting warm, but you must die, be ready to die for this. You must, uh, students have even been put under, uh, the, into, into the position that if they don't get it in so many days, they're going to commit suicide. And they have to stimulate this intense period, a thing called o-session. Don't confuse the word session with the English 
session. Session means studying or observation of the shin, the heart, the mind, the heart-mind. And at this time, they only sleep four hours a night. And they meditate solidly all through the day. They go for the Sun Zen interview twice a day, every one of them. And it's a tremendous workout and will last about five days, five or six days. And in that period, the pressure is really on. Everybody is worked into a pitch of this kind of psychic fury that they have to get this thing answered. There's a man in Japan today who has a five-day Zen uh, system, and he practically guarantees that you will have Satori in his five days. I've just got a book about it written by a British. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Well, I had a, uh, someone I knew of who was over studying Zen on a Fulbright ground. And the ground was winding up, and he still hadn't got the sound of one hand. He said to the master, look, the ground's running out, and I can't stay here. And I've just got to get this thing. So just the day before he left, he suddenly realized that there was nothing to realize. And that was it. You know, here he had spent his whole life thinking that there's something deficient in me. See, there's something wrong. Something I ought to find out to, to get this problem of life cleaned up. Well, you know what you do. Rinzai, the old Chinese master, said, Zen teaching is like using an empty fist to deceive a child, or like trying to stop a child crying by giving it a yellow leaf. See, the child wants gold, and so you give it an autumn leaf and say, dear darling, there's some gold, <laughs> be all right. Or with your closed fist, you say, what have I got here? And the child comes and tries to see and pull your fingers open, then you hide it behind your back and under your leg and behind the chair. The child gets absolutely fascinated. The longer you keep this up, the more the child is sure there's something real goody inside the, the hand. And then at the end, pss, nothing. And that's Zen. So there comes the time, you see, when the student can go in front of the master and not give a damn because he sees, he, he's seen the point. There wasn't a problem. He made up the problem himself. He came and projected it on this master who knew how to handle that kind of person by making him much more stupid than he was before <laughs> until he sees the essential stupidity of the human situation where we are playing a game of one-upmanship on other people and on the universe. How to get the better of life? Well, what makes you think you're separate from life so that you can get the better of it? How can you beat the game? What game? Or who will beat it? This illusion 
of beating the game, of finding the thing out, of catching it by the tail, is therefore dissipated by the technique of the koan. It's called, working on a koan is like a mosquito biting an iron bull. It's the nature of the mosquito to bite. It's the nature of an iron bull to be unbitten. <laughs> or they say it's like swallowing a ball of molten lead. You can't swallow it down. You can't cough it up. You can't get rid of this thing. That's the great doubt, you see. But this is an exaggerated form of what everybody is ordinarily trying to do to beat the game. So at that moment, the student has heard the sound of one hand or discovered who he was before father and mother conceived him or what no means. So the teacher says, good. Now, you have found the frontier gate to Zen. You've put your foot in at the door and you're across the threshold. But there's a long way to go. And now you have found this priceless thing out, you must redouble your efforts. So he gives him another koan. Now the student may be able to answer that one instantly because it's simply a test koan. See, there are five classes of koans. The first class is what you call the Hinayana koans and the other four are the Mahayana koans. Hinayana is to reach nirvana. Mahayana is to come back and bring nirvana into the world as a bodhisattva. So once you get the great void, you see, there's nothing to catch on to. You are the universe. It doesn't matter whether you live or die. That's nirvana. All clinging to life, everything like that, you see then that it's hopeless. And you give it up, because not because you, 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 know, you think you ought to give it up, because you know there is no way of, of catching it. There's nothing to catch hold of. There's no safety in the cosmos. So you just have to to give up. Then, the next class of koans are such things as asking for miracles. In that class comes, take the four divisions of Tokyo out of your sleeve, or uh, stop the booming of a distant bell, blow out a candle in uh, Timbuktu. <laughs> but as they go on in various ways, they are concerned with all kinds of problems and how uh, Zen understanding deals with those problems until we get in the end to the study of morality and rules of social and monastic life. That's the last thing and the Zen way of understanding it. Now this may this takes very, very differing periods of time. Some people get through in as little as 10 years, the whole thing. There is a very brilliant Westerner by the name of Walter Novick, who has just about completed the whole thing. 
and uh, he's a musician and a pianist. And he'll come back to this country as the first accredited Zen master of the West. And uh, he'll set up his little uh, sodo on a farm and wait and see what happens. The day of graduation comes. And then everybody turns out and there's a great hullabaloo and uh, they salute the departing monk and uh, he goes out. He may just become a layman, as I said, or become a temple priest, or he may be himself a roshi. Well now, the essential of this whole system, as you see, is to use a hair of the dog that bit you for the cure of the bite. It's homeopathic. When people are under delusion, they cannot be talked out of the delusion. No amount of talk could persuade anybody that his ego is an illusion. Because he knows it's there. He knows I am I. And simply won't believe you if you tell him that this is nothing but post-hypnotic suggestion. So the only way to convince a fool of, in, of his folly is to make him persist in it. As Blake says, the fool who persists in his folly will become wise. By some psychiatrists I know, I know when they get a person who overeats and is tremendously fat, the first thing they do is they make them put on 15 more pounds. <laughs> and uh, get, the, get an alcoholic terribly drunk. Oh, and sick and just as awful as could be, you see. Really make him go at it. See. That's a method that's used. Sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. It's a rather desperate method. Rather dangerous method. Zen is dangerous too. People could easily go crazy under this sort of strain without a good advisor. Well, it is clear, of course, that this method of Zen training is most unsuited to the modern age. And this is witnessed, too, by the fact that the temples are relatively empty. Myoshinji, the biggest one in Kyoto, is built to house 600 monks. There are only 80. And uh, you might think that was quite a crowd, but it isn't compared with the old days. To young people in Japan today, this is all incomprehensible. They see no point in it. A few, a few, yes, but they are mostly clergy sons carrying out the family tradition. And uh, that's very bad indeed, to be sent to a monastery virtually. As though the only possible success can come for someone who goes because he feels that nothing else in the world will satisfy him. He just has to do it. And so the, the traditions, as in the, all these ancient organizations, have become very fixed. A lot of it's meaningless. It is certainly not going to last, not in that form.
It's falling apart right under our eyes. It's old and it's set in its ways. Also, since the time of Hakuin, the, the koans have been given fixed answers. That is to say, there is a sort of prescribed way in which to answer. Uh, and you've got to hit on the, the right one. And then after you've answered it, you have to find a poem from a little book called the Zen Rinkushu, which means the Zen Forest Anthology. And there are little couplets, and you've got to find one which represents the meaning of your koan. I mean, you know, take the four divisions of Tokyo out of your sleeve. Nothing could be simpler. But some monk has recently threatened to publish all the answers to the koans <laughs> so that the masters would have to get on their toes and invent new ones. I know a, a Roshi who invents new ones. And, uh, and the moment they open their mouths, he stops them. No, no, no. Too late. <laughs> you know, he says, so we, you could ask Christian, what's the first word in the Bible? And uh, things like that. It becomes much more lively, you see, when there is this quick interchange of the teacher and the students. But in modern idiom, who the devil wants to know about Joshu's moo anymore, or uh, um, some ancient <laughs> fellow's questions, couched in language, incidentally. This is part of the problems they have. The language of these koans is very archaic. I mean, what is the sound of one hand? Well, there's a Chinese proverb which says, one hand won't make a clap. So if you don't know that proverb, if that proverb is in everyday use, and I say to you, what is the sound of one hand? Uh, then it has some sense. But there are all kinds of, uh, shall I say, references, allusions, in the old stories. And they uh, therefore don't necessarily fit our world or the Japanese world of day. You have to take the koans out of everyday life, things that are going on now, you see. I mean, it's like asking, what's that man who advertises Schweppes, Commander Whitehead? Why has Commander Whitehead no beard? <laughs> there was, though, you see, there was a division in the history of Zen. Uh, there was a critical point in the 17th century when there were two very great masters, Hakuin and Banke. Now, the 17th century is tremendously important in Japanese history because that was a time when, of what you might call the democratization of culture. Basho invented haiku poetry so that everyone could be a poet. Not necessarily for publication, but for one's own fun. People didn't write poems for publication necessarily. They wrote poems for parties. And he invented the 17-syllable haiku as a result of his Zen feeling for nature so that he could put this within the reach of everybody. What had happened to poetry before that, that time was that it had become so obscure 
and so effete and so sophisticated that only great literati could do it at all. This happened to Chinese poetry. They, there were so many references to other poems. It was like reading T.S. Eliot, you know, in the four quartets. You could get an annotated four quartets showing you the sources of all the phrases he's borrowed. And sometimes you have to know the source in order to see what he means by it. And all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. All right, that's straight from the Revelations of the Divine Love by Dame Julian of Norwich. But whoever would know that? And you have to understand the scene she was digging in order to know really what Eliot's getting at in that all shall be well. And he's full of that. He quotes the Bhagavad Gita. He quotes everybody. So if we all had to write that way, nobody could be a poet unless he was a great scholar. So Basho popularized the haiku. And the haiku are originally based on the Zenrin poems. They take their flavor from that. There is one, you see, that bird calls, mountain changes to be more mysterious. The first line of that says, the wind drops, but the flowers keep on falling. The bird calls and the mountain becomes more mysterious. And so haiku developed from that kind of short insight, that glimpse of, of nature. Now, while Basho was taking poetry to the peasants, Banke was taking Zen to them as well, to the farmers. And he ran his Zen on an entirely different system. He talked mainly about what he called Husho. Husho is the unborn, that which has not yet arisen and which, as a matter of fact, never does arise. And so he said, there is in you the unborn mind which was given to you by your parents. Let me just read you a few quotations from him to show you what sort of a person he was. The mind begotten by and given to each of us by our parents is none other than the Buddha mind, birthless and immaculate, sufficient to manage all that life throws upon us. A proof. Suppose at this very instant, while you face me listening, a crow cause and a sparrow twitters somewhere behind you. Without any intention on your part to distinguish between these sounds, you hear each distinctly. In doing so, you are hearing with the birthless mind, which is yours for all eternity. Well, we are to be in this mind from now on, and our sect will be known as the Buddha mind sect. To consider my example of a moment ago, once again, if any of you feel you heard the crow and the sparrow intentionally, you are deluding yourselves. For you are listening to me, not to what goes on behind you. In spite of this, there are moments when you hear such sounds distinctly, when you hear with the Buddha mind of non-birth. Nobody here can deny this. All of you are living Buddhas because the birthless mind which each possesses is the beginning and the basis of all. Now, if the Buddha mind is birthless, it is necessarily immortal, for how can what has never been born perish? You've all encountered the phrase birthless and imperishable in the sutras, not born, not dying. You know? But hitherto, you've not had the slightest proof of its truth. Indeed, I suppose, like most people, you've memorized this phrase while being ignorant of the fact of birthlessness. When I was 25, I realized that non-birth is all-sufficient to life 
And since then, for 40 years, I've been proving it to people just like you. I was the first to preach this greatest truth of life. I ask, have any of you priests heard anybody else teach this truth before me? Of course not. Uh-huh. A priest said to him, once in the Buddha mind, I'm absent-minded. Banke says, well, suppose you're absent-minded as you say. If someone pricked you in the back with a gimlet, would you feel the pain? Naturally. Then you are not absent-minded. Feeling the pain, your mind would show itself to be alert. A layman says, though I undertake Zen discipline, I often find myself lazy, weary of the whole thing, unable to advance. And he replies, once in the Buddha mind, there's no need to advance, nor is it possible to recede. Once in birthlessness, to attempt to advance is to have receded from the state of non-birth. A man secure in that state need not bother himself with such things. He's above them. The Buddha mind in each of you is immaculate. All you've done is reflected in it. But if you bother about one such reflection, you're certain to go astray. Your thoughts don't lie deep enough. They rise from the shallows of your mind. Remember that all you see and hear is reflected in the Buddha mind and influenced by what was previously seen and heard. Needless to say, thoughts aren't entities. So if you permit them to rise, reflect themselves, or cease altogether as they are prone to do, and if you don't worry about them, you'll never go astray. In this way, let 100, nay 1,000 thoughts arise, and it's as if not one has arisen. You will remain undisturbed. The only thing I tell my people is to stay in the Buddha mind. There are no regulations, no formal discipline. Nevertheless, they have agreed among themselves to sit in Zen for a period of two incense six daily. All right, let them. But they should well understand that the birthless Buddha mind has absolutely nothing to do with sitting with an incense stick burning in front of you. If one keeps in the Buddha mind without straying, there's no further satori to seek. Whether awake or asleep, one is a living Buddha. Zazen means only one thing, sitting tranquilly in the Buddha mind. But really, you know, one's everyday life in its entirety should be thought of as a kind of sitting in Zen. Even during one's formal sitting, one may leave one's seat to attend to something. In my temple, at least, such things are allowed. Indeed, it's sometimes advisable to walk in Zen for one incense sticks burning and sit in Zen for the other. A natural thing after all. One can't sleep all day, so one rises. One can't talk all day, so one sits in Zen. There are no binding rules here. And so that's what happened, you see. Banke was the abbot of Myoshinji, the Roshi. And uh, he stopped the monks using the kaiseki stick to hit them when they weren't meditating or sleeping in meditation because he said, even a sleeping man is still a Buddha and you shouldn't be disrespectful. <laughs> and he, he, he attempted a Zen of no methods. You can meditate if you want to, that's fine. But that's like polishing a brick to make a mirror. And he used to say too that trying to purify your mind is like trying to wash off blood with blood. But Banke Zen was elusive. Hakuin had eight successors. Banke had none. 
and some people think that that was the most admirable thing about him. This concludes Session 8 of Out of Your Mind, Essential Listening, from the Alan Watts Audio Archives. Our program continues with Session 9.